And from Suva in Fiji, let's now return to Australia, where I visited a farm. Well, not just any farm, a pioneering pilot project with ambitious goals in a very unusual setting. When we first started in 2019, it was at the end of the drought and there wasn't a blade of grass on the block. So who'd have thought that you'd have a facility like this in Gundawindi to turn into an algae farm? Yep, an algae farm in Gundawindi, a rural Queensland town perched on the edge of the New South Wales border. In the shadow of a stack of grain silos next to a solar array, right next door to the country town's botanical gardens, two giant ponds are churning green, slimy-looking water. They're the fields for this unlikely crop, marine microalgae strain Nanochloropsis and spirulina. This small pilot program run by grains company Woods Group is hoping these burbling outback ponds will be the future of omega-3 production, the essential fatty acid that has traditionally been harvested from fish. And they hope this project will simultaneously close a carbon emissions loop for the company. I met with Algae Farm's business development manager to see how they plan to do this and to hear why they picked rural Queensland for the project. So my name's Steve Strutt from Algae Farm, which is part of the Woods Group here in Gundawindi. Currently the pathway of omega-3 is algae's a natural plant in the ocean. Smaller fish and plankton are feeding on the algae and then that is taken up by bigger fish and bigger fish until eventually we catch the fish, we bring them in, we strip the oil from those fish and that gives us the omega-3 oils that we get in supermarkets and chemists and dietary now. A lot of fish killed. A lot of fish killed. So the algae that we have here starts in the ocean, goes through a lab with some clever people and we get the nanochloropsis algae that we're looking for and we bring it here to Gundawindi. Algae needs a lot of sunlight for photosynthesis, needs a fairly stable climate, not too cold in winters, so Gundawindi services that very well. Although it might not seem like the best place to grow marine algae, he says the other big reason they wanted to trial the project here, next to the Woods Group's other facilities, is so they can explore offsetting the business's carbon emissions by feeding carbon dioxide to the algae. On average, 1.8 kilos of CO2 given to algae, one kilo of oxygen emitted. Over the oceans, it's their natural environment, but equally, we need a sustainable manufacturing solution that is not going to be impacting the ocean environment. Now, despite the neat alignment of several different objectives and the ambitious plan, running a marine algae farm in rural Queensland is no small job. First of all, this is less a farming operation and more a biotech company. In fact, the company name Algae Farm spells farm with a PH instead of an F, highlighting the distinction. And there are plenty of obstacles for the team here to navigate, notwithstanding water. But before we get to obstacles, Steve Strutt introduces me to the company's lab technician, Eliza Rennan, who goes by JD, to show me exactly what an algae farmer does. My name is JD. I'm the technical manager of the algae farm. And here in algae farm, we are doing nanochloropsis, oculata, growing them, turning them into powder and trying to achieve and get the omega-3 out from it. And as far as I know, we are the first to grow nanochloropsis here in Australia. Omega-3 is an essential fatty acid that our body can't make from scratch. 
And not having enough of it in our diets has been linked to a wide range of health problems, especially cardiovascular conditions. Omega-3 doesn't occur naturally in many foods. Fish oils are one of the best sources for it. But the increasing pressure on global fish stocks has encouraged scientists and small-scale entrepreneurs to explore plant-based alternatives, like algae. On top of this, as more people move away from meat products, the team here at Algae Farm says there's a growing market for omega-3 supplements that aren't derived from fish. We want to produce omega-3, not harming a lot of fish. In here, we would have a sustainable production of omega-3. It's a plant-based. All right, well, uh, JD, we're outside a building. We've got some trees around us, Gondawindi's Botanic Gardens, and a big shed, solar panels, and some algae pools. But let's go into the lab here and have a look at some of the work you do. Yep. So we're going now to the, the laboratory where we grow and upscale the nanochloropsis. So we head first to the, to the lab. So basically what we're seeing right now is this uh, culture. So on this side, these are the spirulina and we have the nanochloropsis. And so these really are just plastic bags filled with green liquid and a couple of floaties in there. Yes, uh, we call this the uh, photobioreactors. Inside this small laboratory are a handful of plastic bags hanging on a rack filled with bubbling green water. Carbon dioxide is being pumped into the slightly salty water inside to help the algae grow. This is the first of many steps to scale up a tiny beaker of living algae over and over again until they've got a pond full of this stuff. So from uh, 200 ml water of green water of algae, we scale them up to one liter, to five liters, and then to 15 liters. What are the conditions that algae needs to grow effectively? What does it normally need in the wild to grow? And then how are you simulating that here? So we mimic the ocean water. You need light, you need feed, you need correct water, you need the correct pH level. So you start with just a small little bottle of algae. Yes. You put it in these photobioreactors, the plastic bags. Yep. You're pumping some carbon dioxide in there to feed them, presumably. You've got the sunlight on them as well. Yep. So as we go through the next room, we will see what is the next stage for the nanochloropsis. So there's already a different smell in this room. Can you describe what you're smelling? The smell is like if you're eating sushi. For me, it smells like seaweed, nori paper. It smells like a sushi. Yeah. And it's, um, it's quite noisy in here. There's a lot of big bubbling tanks and two big tall towers with uh, green liquid inside and bubbles moving through it. So what's happening in here? This is a second stage from the laboratory. So from the 15 liter bioreactors to the towers. So these two towers are also nanochloropsis. We are trying to control the growing conditions. As you can see, it's a bit more warmer here. Right now, we've tried opening the windows up so that when they go outside, they will be a bit more acclimatized. JD says figuring out the ideal growing conditions for algae in Gundawindi took plenty of trial and error. Although it might grow freely in the sea, here, temperatures, pH and contaminants need to be constantly monitored. But he says they've just about cracked the right recipe. So now JD says they're fine-tuning the process and improving their water and energy efficiency. For example, outside in the ponds, we use bore water. And once we harvest, it gets recycled. So 
There's no waste electricity. There are solar panels over there. We step out of the farm's laboratory and head out past the solar array towards a pair of partially enclosed greenhouses. This is where the algae is introduced for the first time into the outside world. Okay, so right now after the laboratory and then the towers, the next stage will be the micropond. It's a small raceway pond. So this is the pond that could contain 40,000 litres. And the use of the paddle wheel is to make the water more agitated so that they will not settle in the bottom so that every small cell could get a fair bit of sunlight like an ocean because we're trying to mimic the same environment as where they originated here. It seems strange that they take the algae out of the meticulously controlled conditions in the lab and dump it straight into this outdoor pond. But JD tells me the earlier lab stages are all about preparing the algae culture for these conditions in rural Queensland. And when I ask him about potential contaminants, he says by this point in production, the brackish water is so full of algae that it's rare for anything else to be able to survive in there with it at significant levels. He tells me anything that does get into the ponds will be filtered out later in the process. During the harvest, we can eliminate the other contaminants. And so those are the carbon dioxide cylinders yeah. to yeah. pump into the pond, yeah? Yeah, we use packets of cylinders of CO2. So this will be the source of CO2 going to the ponds. But he points out this CO2 hasn't come from the Woods Group site here in Gundawindi. The team plans to figure out that step after they've shown they can master algae mass production. This micropond is already a fairly impressive pool of green slimy water, but from here they go even bigger. From that micropond, we will be transferring it to this one. This is a very big pond roughly 200 metres long. It's one of two, both giant loops, open to the air, running through a pretty dry-looking field. And like the smaller greenhouse ponds, a paddle wheel is churning and circulating the water in here. It's a small team working here on this project, right? I think it's just three people, is that, is yes, that right? we're just uh, three people working here. And so you start with a vial of yeah. algae, 200 mils, 250 mils. Yeah. And then through these different stages of scaling up, you know, in the, the bags and then in the bigger containers and then into the first pond. Finally, you end up in this pond. Yep. How many litres would be in this pond? It would be 700,000 litres. The amount of algae you can harvest from a pond like this is complicated. JD tells me when their crop is ready, they might siphon 40,000 litres out one day and filter out the algae. But unlike other crops, you can continue harvesting this one. He says if you add 40,000 litres of bore water back into the pond, the algae population quickly repopulates. This means the algae can keep growing and being harvested over many months. JD says when they used the smaller outdoor pond here last season, they could take 200,000 litres of algae-filled water out each week. For that 200,000 litres, we could get roughly 200 litres of concentrate. And that paste-like concentrate is then purified to make a powder or an oil that can be used as an omega-3 supplement in a range of foods. Right now, we can harvest a really clean food-grade powder already. And we have some trials on some oil. So we just need to, like, upscale it. 
Rather than maximising algae production, their first tentative steps have been towards finding the right processes, products and markets. Based on lab tests, Algae Farm says they have comparable amounts of omega-3 to other products on the market, plus a decent amount of omega-6 and 9. And they say their raw algae concentrate is also high in protein, which could open up pathways for other uses. So far, they've only produced trial samples for commercial food manufacturers to test and experiment with. But they have high hopes that these companies will find a home for their fish-free, algae-based omega-3 in products like snack foods, plant-based alternatives, and possibly even some stock feeds. Despite the many potential uses of this algae and their optimism, JD and the team are realistic that they're still in the early trial phases of this project. And they are still troubleshooting how to grow marine algae in non-marine conditions. For nanochloropsis, its limitation is high temperatures. Once we get continuous straight days of 30s... Which is quite common out of Kundu, India, I think. Yes, yeah, so it crashes and then it dies down. So that's why nanochloropsis, we usually grow it during cold days, cold months. Uh, Spirulina wants like 32 degrees. That is its sweet spot. We consider nanochloropsis as winter crop, spirulina as a summer crop. As we make our way back to the lab building, Steve Strutt rejoins us. He reiterates that they're still in the piloting and learning phase of this project. For the last few years, it was the learning curve. There's generic information of how to grow algae, but when you want to bring it to this scale, they change. What Google tells you about how to grow algae, when you've got 350,000 litres of algae in a pond, the rules change. And he's also quick to point out that for marine microalgae farming to take off, they're very reliant on food manufacturers being willing and able to switch to algae alternatives. If you want to bake bread, you've got 3,000 years of history to have a recipe. You want to grow algae, we're writing our own recipe book. So we've got algae samples all over Australia and overseas where the food manufacturers are now learning how to use algae as a recipe. And of course, all of this is reliant on brands and consumers choosing a more expensive plant-based product. So far, Algae Farm has been supported by a Queensland Biofutures grant. But as this project looks to scale up, they'll need to show they can produce a consistent amount of algae for a competitive price. I don't believe we'll ever be fully cost comparable with the fish oil. This will be a plant-based solution with some uniqueness based on manufacturer's product development. Another issue will be making sure they can mass produce their algae products with food grade certification. And perhaps the biggest test will be demonstrating that algae manufacturing in Gundawindi can still continue when water is scarce. There's no such thing as a process that doesn't have losses, but we've got access to a bore that brings our initial water in. Through the harvesting process and when we're dewatering, the water that we take off is captured with its nutrients and salts and returned back to the ponds. The town's water that we use is literally in our lab processes, so we're not taking from a limited water supply in the town. Despite the many obstacles ahead, Steve Strutt says they're already underway with some early planning for the next phase of the pilot project, offsetting carbon emissions from their parent company. 
At the moment, the CO2 we are using comes from bottles. We hope in the future we'll take community waste, put that through a generation system that will give us CO2 output, which we will take to the ponds. I'm just fortunate that I've got a big bucket of water with full of algae that is hungry for CO2, so therefore I've got the ability to push that CO2 emission through the ponds and not put it out to the atmosphere. And he says there'll be more to share about that soon. In the meantime, both Steve and JD remain optimistic and excited to keep exploring what's possible when it comes to algae farming here in the remarkably unlikely setting of Gundawindi. In 2019, we started with a small bucket of green water. It was then through the phases of getting algae out into the ponds, extracting the algae from the ponds, failures, successes, then getting through to a final dry product, working our way through one step at a time. It's like a continuous process of learning and research on how to get a better yield but I think with the use of microalgae as an alternative source of omega-3, feels good because instead of processing fish to get the algae, I could eat more fish. 